Yeah, good morning. Uh, we are in the middle of a series, as you can see, called Love Has Called My Name, and we are moving through the book of Galatians, chunks at a time. And so this morning, we're actually going to take a broader look, sort of a big picture look at chapter one here. So let's get into it. And our scripture reading is simply chapter one of Galatians. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Galatians chapter one. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for, more, for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stay with him 15 days, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying." Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he want, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. And say amen to that. That's God's word today. Now, if you are here and you've ever seen one of the many men in black movies then you're familiar with one of the more creative elements in sort of recent sci-fi history, movie history. The Men in Black movies are, of course, uh, are about a top-secret government agency uh, which is always saving the world from imminent alien invasion and destruction. And they're always, they're always saving the world. They're, they're finding aliens everywhere. But the reason that nobody knows that the top-secret agency exists or that aliens exist is that uh, these government agents have these little you know, things they pull out, these little mind zappers that they pull out and then they, they put them in front of people and the thing goes, Koosh, you know. Uh, and the person and, and the people to whom this happens instantly forget what they've seen and they only remember 
what the agent has told him to remember. And of course, these things, these mind zappers, they, they are amazing. They're miraculous. They, they work in real life. I mean, every once in a while, my wife actually gets hers out. And she holds it up in, in front of the kids and goes, you are having a ch- happy childhood, you know. Uh, your parents never get mad at you, you know. You won't need expensive therapy one day uh, to undo what we've done. And of course, I'm kidding. Uh, these things don't really exist. Or do they? Or uh, do they? How would we know if they existed after all, right? Anyway. Anyway, in the movie, these things were always used to essentially put people back to sleep, to cause them to forget the cosmic battle that was going on all around them that they were witness to. And at one point, one of the agents turns to the Tommy Lee Jones character and he says, you know, the aliens, they've got like this death ray. The earth is about to be destroyed. And Tommy Lee Jones says, uh, you know, listen, the earth is always about to be destroyed. It's always under threat. There's always a cosmic battle going on. Now, it's a clever movie, clever idea, but in a very real way. One of those memory zappers does exist. It's actually a letter written almost 2,000 years ago to the churches in Galatia. It's the book of Galatians. It was written to a group of people who were on the brink of losing their faith, and their church was on the brink of falling apart. And in the gospel, in the book of Galatians, Paul uses this book to wake people up to the cosmic drama, the cosmic battle going on all around them. He's using the, the essential and central message of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus, uh, like one of those mind devices. Only he's reversed the setting. He's working it in reverse. He's holding up the gospel and saying, you know, remember, remember what's important. Remember what's going on around you. Remember. You're in the middle of a cosmic battle and drama. And you can see, of course, he's doing this right from the get-go in verse 4, in which Paul, only three verses into the book, lays out what the gospel message is. And he puts it in a nutshell, as it's been said. He said, The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. He's saying, listen, there's a present evil age that's going on right now, a a cosmic battle for the planet happening. But there's rescue and there's hope in the person of Jesus, who is, in a sense, God's secret agent, secret rescue plan, now come to light and made known so that he might save the world, not because of what we have done, but in spite of what we have done and through what he has done. In a sense, here in Galatians 1, Paul is playing his own cosmic version of truth or dare. He, he's saying, here is the truth. Now, I dare you to remember it. I dare me to remember it. I dare us to remember who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for us today. Paul is, in a sense, in Galatians 1, he is daring us this morning to remember the gospel in three ways that we're going to look at. First, he's daring us to remember it by his challenge. Second, through Paul's change. And finally, in our choice, in a choice that he lays out for us, which we'll look at. But let's begin here in number one and look at simply the challenge that Paul puts before us, the Christian people in in the church. He says in verse six, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
All right, so let's not forget who we are. A moment of recap. Last week we saw that essentially the point of Galatians is this. Christians think they know the gospel, but they forget it. And the reason we know this is true, the reason we know that all our problems really come from forgetting the gospel, is because that's exactly what had happened to the people, to the Christians, to the church folk in Galatia. Their lives were a mess, their church was on the brink, their faith was in tatters, not because they hadn't moved on to deeper truths, but their faith and their church was falling apart because they had. Because they had moved on. In other words, Paul shows us the gospel isn't just for outsiders or non-Christians or people of no faith. No, the gospel is for Christians. It's for Christians. And here now, in chapter 1, he's talking about, he's going after not a person's personal practices, nor someone's morality, nor even church government stuff, how the church works. No, here he's simply going after truth. He's going after truth, what's really real, what really matters. And here he's going after and he's challenging something that he says can distort distort and destroy our faith. Now, like I said last week, there's some hard, difficult things that are in this letter, but that's what's in here. So we ought to look at them. Let's take a look at it and just ask, what's Paul challenging here? What is he saying could destroy your life? And take away the freedom you have in Jesus. It's simply this. It's false doctrine. (laughs) He's showing us that false doctrine and false teachers can destroy our lives. He's challenging false doctrine. And next week we'll take a look at what that false doctrine was. But today we just want to acknowledge, just take a look at what he's doing, again, on a 35,000 foot level. He is challenging an idea and labeling it as false doctrine. Now. Right away when you hear those words, false doctrine, let's just be honest. Some of you cringe inside, right? You think, great. I mean, you know, Morgan, I finally bring a friend today. I talk him or her into coming, and it had to be the week with the sermons on false doctrine. Why couldn't it have been on, you know, seven keys to happiness today or three ways to get a promotion? That would have been exciting and encouraging and non-offensive. False doctrine, you know, heretics? I mean, what's next? Witch trials? You know, inquisitions? Why do we feel this way? Well, we feel this way, you feel this way, because you don't live in 16th century Europe. You feel this way because you live in 21st century America, and you are as conditioned by your culture as they were in their day. And today, unlike then, we are conditioned culturally to reject truth claims, and we believe, though we can't prove it, that every person ought to be able to believe whatever they want to, about whatever they want to, for any reason that they want. All thoughts we believe today, though we can't prove it, are equally valid. But consider this thought with me just for a moment. Let's do just a little thought experiment together. In the 1930s, 1940s, why did the Nazis kill more than 6 million Jews in Europe? Why? Was it because one of them woke up one day and said to his friend, you know what I'd, I'd really like to do today? I'd like us to hatch a plot so evil that for the rest of history, all other inhumane acts and perverse atrocities are measured by what we cook up here. Hmm? Who's in for that? Who's down for some of that? No. They did, the e- they did the evil thing they did because they believed they were doing a good thing. 
And if you disagree with them, if you say what they were doing was wrong, first of all, let me just point out what you're doing. You are actually willing to say that millions of people are wrong about what they believe or believed. You are willing to say that a whole nation and a whole culture, in a sense, a whole faith system was wrong about what they believed. So let's not get too hung up when someone else like Paul or Jesus or a pastor says that other people, millions of people, perhaps other cultures and nations are wrong about what they believe. We all do it. You do it. And we ought to do it. We ought to do it when it comes to certain things and certain ideas. You say, Morgan, uh, you know, I thought you were talking about religious beliefs. Well, I am. I am. Ask you another question. Do you believe that all humans are equally valuable and equally deserving of protection and rights under the law? All right, great. Prove that's true. Prove it's true. What evidence do you have that that belief is true? Can you apply, for example, the scientific method and prove that belief is true? No, you can't. Actually, Go to evolutionary theory and ask, are all people equally valuable? No. Actually, in evolutionary theory, some people need to die or be eaten to help the species survive. So let me ask you again. Was what the Nazis did evil? If you say yes, it's not a scientific belief. It's a personal and religious faith belief about the way life ought to be. You, therefore, have a personal doctrine doctrine about the way things ought to be. And if you say that we ought to be, people ought to be, stopping genocide and getting in the way of ethnic cleansings and stopping civil rights violations in our nation and abroad, what you are saying is this, that we ought to be confronting false doctrine. That's what you're doing. Why? Because you believe that false doctrine, false ideas, wrong ideas are deadly. You believe that. And you're actually right. You agree with the Bible. The Bible agrees with you. Hey, congratulations. It's happened one time, right? But this isn't just true on a national and corporate level. It's actually true on a personal one. Let me show you. Consider, for example, again, this is the idea that that wrong ideas, false ideas can be deadly. Uh, Three women could be men, we're just going to say women, women that go on a musical audition or an acting audition or an athletic tryout of some sort, three women, three women, and the very same thing happens to all three. All three of them are turned down, rejected, don't make the team, don't get the part, all that, and someone else does. Well, what happens? Well, the first one gets angry, the second one gets depressed, and the third actually handles it well. So let's ask, why do they all have different reactions? Or ask, why do you have the reactions you do when something maybe similar happens to you, when you don't get what you want, or you don't get the part, or you don't feel seen or selected or chosen or promoted, or whatever? Hmm. I'll tell you why you have the reaction you do, I have the reaction I do. It's because you and I, we, like every other person, we process our circumstances through a belief system, through a personal doctrine. The first woman who got angry, her doctrine, her personal doctrine is this. I am so good. <laughs> I am so talented. Why would I waste my time on their little low-life band, their little low-life TV show? Uh, I'm too good for them, and one day they'll regret not having me around, right? Come on, you know someone like that, I'm sure. All right, not you, of course, someone else. Uh, the second woman doesn't get angry. Now, she falls into despair because her belief is this. I knew it. I'm not loved. I'm not valuable. I'm no good, and I never was. 
The third woman doesn't fall into anger or despair. She handles it well and says, not, I knew it, but I know it. I know it. I know that in the gospel, in Jesus, I am loved, not by what I do, but by whose I am. I am unconditionally loved by God, and he is for me. He has something better and more right for me in the long run than I could ever imagine now. That's three women. One is angry, one despairs, one is secure. What is the difference in how they felt? Not their circumstances. Those were identical. It was what they believed about their circumstances. See, we think our circumstances are what cause our emotional ups and downs, but they aren't. It's our doctrine that causes our ups and downs. Our beliefs cause our emotional ups and downs. Have you ever, in a third case study, tried to talk a friend out of committing suicide? I hope you haven't, but if you have, what were you doing? You were confronting, you were contradicting false doctrine in their lives. See, feeling so awful about your life or circumstances or that you want to end it, that's not a scientific belief, is it? No, it's a doctrine. And false doctrines, truly false doctrines, are matters of life and death. And they don't just reside in the head. They drop into the heart and out into the world. And this idea in Galatians about what the gospel is, about who Jesus is, is life and death. It's talking about eternal life and eternal separation from God. And that's why Paul writes it. See, essentially Galatians, therefore, is one big nope from Paul. One big nope. See, Paul, he is not a man who is afraid to confront false teaching. And if you can't do the same, you'll never help anyone. Never help anyone. You shouldn't just look at your friend who's on the verge of suicide and say, yep, go for it. Yep, your life's terrible, awful. No one's going to miss you. Shouldn't, Right? Now, what would you do? You'd step in front of that. You begin to help others when you contradict false teaching about what's really true and really real. Let me ask, did Paul help these people? Yes. Did he help these churches by saying no? Aren't you glad he confronted false teaching and preserved for you your liberty in Jesus today? I'm glad. I'm glad. See, you begin to help others when you contradict false teaching about the gospel and what it is. And by the way, this letter has changed the course of human history. How are we doing today? <laughs> See, Paul's saying, wake up and remember. Your beliefs have life or death consequences. Remember, life and death are right here on this issue. And this is how strongly he feels about it. He says that even if, sorry here, you've been touched by an angel. <laughs> been touched by an angel, sorry, throwback TV reference, and the angel tells you that you are saved or healed or whole and anything else, then the life and finished work, and faith in the, in the life and finished work of Jesus of Nazareth, he says, kick the angel out. I mean, grab that thing, man, get your ushers and deacons together, man, kick him out on the street. And he says, even if I come back next year and I tell you something else than what I've already told you, if I give you a different gospel, he says, kick me out kick me out. What's that tell us? It tells us this, that we don't judge the gospel. It tells us that the church doesn't judge the gospel. Your experience doesn't judge the gospel. Church leadership doesn't judge the gospel. No, the gospel judges us. The gospel judges our church. It judges our experience. It judges church leadership. We are under its authority, not the other way around. And let me press you one step further about what this means. What this also means is that your feelings, therefore, don't determine what's true. 
Your feelings don't determine what's true or what's not true, whether the Bible's true or right or not, and really, you don't want them to. You don't want them to. Do you really want what's really true about the universe to be based on what a group of people living in North America in the 21st century say? is right and true. No. Listen, the Bible has changed the world not by fitting into the times, but by not fitting into the times. The Bible has changed the world by not fitting into the times. When loving your enemies was out and unpopular and revenge was the culturally acceptable social practice in Jesus' day, the gospel said this, forgiving your enemies honors God. Aren't you glad the Bible holds that up as true? I am. When it was out and unpopular and not in with the times to care for the poor and the dying and the sick of the Roman Empire, the gospel said this, love for the poor and the sick and the dying is love for God. It honors God. Aren't you glad the Bible holds us up as true and didn't cater to the times? And today, what the Bible says about many things, including and especially sexuality and marriage, it just isn't in with the times. But why should it be? To paraphrase Bob Dylan, the times are always a-changing. Times are always a-changing, and they always will change. If we abandon anything that's true based on our cultural moment, just because there's pressure to do so, it's not just not wise. It's not just silly. Galatians 1 says it's deadly. It's deadly. Galatians 1 challenges us to remember that false doctrine, false teaching, it's deadly. And that's the first point. Point number one. That's the challenge. Now, before we move on, let me transition like this. I know some of you may be saying here, okay, yeah, 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 Morgan, you, you, you got a point. I see what you're saying. But all this stuff about truth, it's so cold and hard and unfeeling, unfeeling. I want a faith system uh, that isn't necessarily into the objective, but the subjective. I, I don't just want truth. I want an experience and emotional stuff. I don't just want propositions. I want story and narrative. All right, then. So let's ask which is it? Is Christianity, is the Bible, about truth or experience? Is it about the objective or subjective? Is it about propositions or story? And the answer is yes. <laughs> answer is yes. It's both at the same time. And we see this in Galatians 1, not just through Paul's challenge in the first half of the chapter, but through his change that he talks about in the second half of the chapter. So let's turn our attention and just look at Paul's change here. Number two. And listen, everything that Paul has done so far in, in Galatians is contradict false teaching, stand up for truth. But what does he do now without even pausing for breath? Well, he goes right into a story. He moves from propositions into a story, from truth to experience. And what experience was it? Well, it was his own, right? Paul goes into his own story, his own testimony, as we Christians like to call such things today. Let's look at what he says truth had done to him. He says, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. Oh, I love this. He's saying there's a way that I used to live that I don't live like anymore. And, and what does he say that way of living was? Verse 13, he says, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. He said, I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more zealous for my ancestral traditions. 
Listen, he's saying, not just look at my different faith system I have now. He's saying, look at the different lifestyle I have now. He's saying, I used to have a whole different lifestyle. Paul, if you didn't know, used to be basically an anti-Christian activist and lobbyist. He lobbied the government for permission to harass, to jail Christians, even supported efforts to kill them. He was just doing what he believed was right. But now he says, I was wrong. But what broke him free from all of this? Three words. Verse 15, he says, but when God, but when God. And church, I hope that we all have these three words at work in our lives today. But when God, but when God. He's saying God acted into my life without my permission, I might add. And God will act into your life without your permission. He's saying God acted into my life. God intervened how? He said he set me apart. Listen, God didn't ask Paul's permission to set him apart, did he? Before he was in his mother's womb, God said, he's mine. Oh. He said, he called me even from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Well, what happened to him? He's saying, in essence, love called my name. He's saying, love has called my name. Not just truth. He said, I had an exper- experiential, subjective encounter with truth. So let's ask now. What does all of this show us? What's the, the teaching here? What do we learn? What do we get out of Paul's testimony then at, again, a 35,000-foot Bible view level? Well, it's just this. We see in Paul's testimony what God has always been doing. You say, well, that's not much of a stunner, Morgan. All right, there's more to come. What God has always been doing on the planet and in your life. So what had God been doing all along in Paul's life? He said, he had set me apart, even from my mother's womb. Paul here, you've got to catch this. He's making one of the strongest and most sweeping theological statements he could ever make. He's saying not only was God involved, in his conception, not only was God with him as an embryo and a fetus in his mother's womb, he's saying that God was with him, even in all his mistakes and sins and failures all his life, even when he was trying to destroy the church of God. Oh, he's saying God is preparing me all along to change the world, to do what I'm doing now. How could Paul say this? It's pretty stunning. And the answer is, he could say that. Because that's what the Bible has always said. The Bible has always said. Let's look at the case study briefly in the Old Testament of the person of Joseph. Uh, At the end of the book, in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph, the person of Joseph, gives us what is the theological pinnacle, really, of the whole Bible. When Joseph says this at the end of his story, he says, You, to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He's saying, God has been acting into my life the whole time, even through my pains and my failures and my mistakes. You say, man, mistakes? Well, where was that in Joseph's life? I thought he just got, you know, sold later into slavery. No. Consider who Joseph is when we meet him. By the time he was 17, Joseph was a wreck. He was a mess after losing his mother. His mother died at a young age. Now he was raised by a single dysfunctional father who spoiled him to dull his own pain. And when Joseph was 17, when we meet him, he begins having dreams. (laughs) of stalks of wheat that grow up and bow down to his own stalk of wheat. So what does he do? 
Well, Joseph goes to a group of people he knows hate him and says, what this means is, you will all bow down to me. (laughs) And those people who just happen to be his brothers hate him now even more. That's what the scripture says. And he knows it. And then he has another dream, Joseph does, about the sun and the moon and the stars all bowing down to him. And he goes back to the people he's already enraged and he knows hate him even more. And what does he do? He tells them, what this means is you will all bow down to me. Yeah. What's this showing us? It shows us this. Not that we shouldn't share our dreams with the wrong people. (laughs) Although that may be true in life, that's not what's going on here. It shows us, no, that Joseph was a borderline psychopath who cares nothing for anyone else but himself. And it shows us this, that Joseph's family, the very family through which God had promised to save the world, was falling apart and on the edge of disaster. And if this family can't make it, this is the point of the story or the movie of the plot, if this family doesn't make it, then God's promise to save the world through them will be found false and his plan will have failed. So, how is God going to save his family and save the world? Oh, God would have to heal a wounded 17-year-old boy. And how would he heal a wounded teenage son? Here's how. By allowing him to be sold into slavery by his brothers. Hmm. And so for the next two decades, Joseph was repeatedly betrayed, ignored, lied about, goes to prison on trumped up charges, we see. But he emerges unscathed, eventually promoted to be the head of a foreign nation, the prime minister of Egypt. So when the world has a famine, and now it's on the line, not just for Joseph, not for his family, but for the whole world. What ace is God going to pull out of his sleeve to heal it all? He is going to pull out a teenage boy, now become a man, who had been wounded and forgotten in a foreign land, but now had been humbled and healed because he came to see that he had been set apart from his mother's womb. What his brothers meant for evil, what they meant to do to harm him, God meant, God turned, God repurposed for good. And if you think that's something, consider this. Jesus says, that story is really all about him. Meaning this, that after centuries, after Joseph lived, when the future of the human race was on the line, when the human race, when God's family in Israel was under the boot of the Roman Empire, under oppression from the devil, God would one day turn to another son he had been preparing in secret. Another young man who was betrayed by his brothers and sold for silver. Another young man who was wounded, betrayed, forgotten, and abandoned. But though we had been, though we were the brothers who betrayed him, this Jesus, he did it all to restore us, to bring us back into relationship with his father. But unlike Joseph, who went through his difficulties for his own healing and lived through it all, Jesus endured the cross for us didn't live but died for our restoration, for our reconciliation with the Father to bring the family back together. But it was only because we handed him over that the healing of the world could begin. See, God used humanity's greatest mistake to bring about its greatest moment. And that's why Paul could say what he did. That God had been at work the whole time in his life because he saw not just Joseph's life, but the one that Joseph pointed to. Jesus, the Son of God. Which brings us now, now finally, 
to the third way that Paul is daring us. He's daring us to remember the gospel. He simply gives us, number three, a choice. A choice. And the choice is simply this. Will you believe this? Will you believe it? Will you believe that God is doing the same thing in your life that he did in Joseph's and Jesus's and Paul's? That he's preparing you for a purpose. Look what Paul says God did, the, pur- the purpose of uh, what God did in his life was. He says, God was pleased, verse 16, to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What did God call him for? Why did he set him apart? It was to show off what he can do in a life. In C.S. Lewis's autobiography entitled Surprised by Joy, Lewis talks about a teacher that had an enormous, enormous influence on his life. He was a professor named Kirk. Now, his name was Kirk, but that's not what the students called him. The students actually called the professor the Great Knock because he would basically knock people's arguments. And in his autobiography, Lewis says this about the Great Knock. He said, if any man ever came near to being a purely logical entity, that man was Kirk. Some boys would not have liked it. To me, it was red beef and strong beer. And what you find out is that Professor Kirk, the logical machine, was responsible for turning C.S. Lewis into a logical machine himself. And because Kirk was an atheist, he turned Lewis into an atheist. But here's what's so interesting. Later on, when Lewis became a Christian, he saw that as a result of being under the influence of Professor Kirk, now he was the best debater the clearest thinker, the most rational observer, and strongest apologist for the truths of Christianity. See, God used an atheist, a fantastic, brilliant atheist, the great knock, to turn Lewis into the greatest evangelist to the intellectual elite of the last century. And when Lewis went on to write his Chronicles of Narnia, and he wrote a version of himself into the story, his own character. Do you know what name he gave himself in the story? He called himself Professor Kirk. <laughs> Professor Kirk, which proves two things. Number one, that God has a sense of humor, after all. And number two, that the greatest assaults on your life, your mistakes, your failures, only serve to make you that much more effective for God's great dream for you. What had God done in Lewis's life? Set him apart, revealed his son so that he might preach the gospel, right, to the Gentiles, to us. And that is what God is doing in your life and in this church. If you are here today, and you are, you have been set apart from your mother's womb. You need to hear that. I don't care if she didn't want you or he didn't want you. You have a heavenly father who did and does. And his word trumps theirs. If you are here today, which you are, God wants to reveal his son in you. That means both the encouraging truth that you have plans laid for you that will make you look more and more and feel more and more, look more and more beautiful and radiant like he is. But it also means the challenging truth that there are just going to be difficult moments that you're going to have to go through to make that truth a reality. And if you are here today, and you are, it means this, that God has people for you to reach, people for you to preach to, to love and share your story with in the hopes that they might turn from their old life and wake up to the cosmic drama happening all around them. Paul is saying here, look at my life. Look at my life. The gospel just isn't truth. It's not cold truth on a page. It's red hot experience. It isn't just an experience though. It comes from truth. And today, 
we can have both. You say, how? By making a choice. Two choices here. First, for those of you who are Christians here, I'm asking you to believe this. I'm asking you to believe that God has set you apart from your mother's womb for something great. And if you have doubts about that, I'm asking you to let your doubts go. Man, doubt your doubts. We doubt everything except for our doubts. Man, we just doubt God, doubt his word, doubt what he says, doubt what he wants, doubt his heart. We never doubt our dang doubts. Doubt your doubts. Listen, doubt Doubt can be good at times. It can be good. It can be healthy in some ways, but it can also be deadly if it's not checked by the Word of God. But secondly, the second choice to make is for those of you maybe here who aren't Christians. And the only way that that truth can be true is if God is really real and if Jesus really has come for you. If you're here and you're feeling some kind of power working into your life, calling into your life, which is what Paul said, you're going to have to pick up the phone and answer the call. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, Romans says, shall be saved. Let's go to him this morning as we trust him to move in our hearts and on our lives as our band comes and plays for us. Lord, we come this morning, we thank you for these these truths and for the experience that we can have for both. Lord, I'm asking now that you would meet us here in these moments. If you're here today and you're just struggling with uh, believing the truth, struggling with a false belief, God hasn't set you apart. God hasn't called you for great things in his kingdom. Would you just raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Lord, I just speak on one hand and first just a word of rebuke, of rejection of those false beliefs. Lord, I speak a word of freedom over these people's souls and their lives and their minds. Lord, I pray for them. In this moment, they would let go. If that was you, just let go. Say, I let go of my unbelief. Say, I doubt my doubt. I believe God's word. I believe I was set apart from my mother's womb for a purpose. Lord, I pray that would sink deeper. But go deeper, underneath. Lord, even if we've rejected ourselves, Lord, it's you came to us first. You were ahead of us my mother's womb. You've chosen me.